It is a great joy to continue to unpack with you this section of Romans, which, which is at its core uh, a text about love. It is a text about the implications of love, the love that Paul has uh, unpacked for us in the first 11 chapters, the faithfulness of God, loving those who didn't love him back, how he has pursued both Jew and Gentile through the ages, how he gave himself for them, and how he has then created an environment where there is no longer condemnation because of the completed work of Christ on our behalf and the great victory that is resurrection, what we continue to celebrate in this Easter season. Gosh, the implications of resurrection cannot be fit on one Sunday with beautiful dresses and nice flowers. Easter is something that needs to permeate our thoughts and our minds throughout at least some period of the year every year because resurrection as the victory of love itself over sin and death is certainly worth spending a protracted period of time on. And so we are in this section where Paul goes over several chapters to unpack the beauty and the power of God's love and its implications. We saw in chapter 12, as we opened up, that we have the ability, just as Christ gave himself for the church, because we are new in Christ, we too can give ourselves back to God and to the world as living offerings, as living representations of the active and powerful love of God in and through the world. And last week, we unpacked even a little more what that love looks like within the body of Christ, within those who live around us and our neighbors, and even the extension of loving those who are our enemies and how that becomes a hallmark of the very character and nature of the church. The people that Paul wrote this letter to, some of them would have died in Nero's garden just a few years later. And so when he says, love your neighbor, he's telling people, though Paul didn't know exactly how they would suffer, are folks who, if they took Paul seriously and loved their enemy, would have received, at least from an earthly perspective, the reward of being burned alive. And yet we know that the implications of God's love is not felt in a moment of suffering, or even several hours, but over lifetimes and generations. And so we talked about how last week that the foundation laid by the early church in its love and care for others, that it was the great-great-grandchildren of those martyred who enjoyed a season under the Caesar we talked about last week, um, where it was hard to persecute Christians. That Caesar Justin couldn't get popular opinion to want to persecute Christians. And so we recognize that it isn't just an immediate thing. The challenge of suffering, the challenge of God's plan, is that it very rarely has immediate impact. That it is a long, slow process. God is a God of process. That uh, he, yes, 
loves us. And yes, we are declared righteous. And there is a moment in which we know the joy of salvation. But ah, unpacking the implications and living them out. That has always been a process. So we continue to look at the process this morning, looking in chapter 13, verses 8 and 14, on how we continue to grow in this understanding of love itself. Paul says this, starting in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour, uh, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from the sleep. For salvation is near to us now, nearer than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again for your provision in so many ways throughout worship, with your presence, with the high priest that is your son who stands at the right hand pleading and advocating on our behalf and the spirit which joins us together as one body. We continue as one body to come before your word, asking that you might individually and corporately continue to shape us by your love. And whatever does not encourage your love, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. It's uh, been used as an illustration by me a few times that I had the privilege of uh, working for my grandfather uh, farming and uh, doing a little ranching, and uh, there are more than one uh, occasion where I found myself up uh, right before sunup, if not uh, long before sunup, to uh, check on water, check on irrigation, make sure that uh, water has a tendency to go its own way, that it was still headed in the generally the right direction. But what I realized as I began to, to meet other people and grow up is that farmers are just really lazy dairymen. Because dairymen are always up at, always, I mean, I had to get up early during the summer. Farmers do not have to get up early during the winter. They get a good four, five, six months off. And ranchers are just lazy farmers. Because the cows do all the work, and occasionally you have to go camping and find out where your cows are. But dairymen have to be up all hours, every day, because milking never takes a break. And I reflected on that in thinking that when I am in the midst of the winter and have less of a compelling reason to get up like my grandmother 
calling up to me to make sure that I was already up because trust me, she beat me up. Uh, well, she beat me up, but she also rose earlier than I did. She was loving in her instruction and direction. Is that I want to more often than not when that sun comes up, given my own personality, pull the sheets a little bit over my head, hoping that sunrise isn't quite now and that I can put it off just a little bit more. Paul here is telling God's people that they should rejoice that the day is coming and that it is met with the activity of love. That the reason they should be encouraged is that their love, even as they exhibit it and work in and through the world in the darkness, that they need not fear that it will be in vain, that even if they don't see the daylight and the implications of their love perfectly as it's received or rejected in the world around them, that the day is coming. And that all of those good and loving acts will be seen in the light of the day for what they are. Because the resurrection is the time when we know the dawn began. And so this morning I want us to look at uh, this section in light of the joy of what's coming. But first we're going to look at the dead of love, the daybreak and what it brings and finally, dressed for success. Those are all D's, by the way. I didn't have to flub There's that one. Dead of love. Paul starts off in uh, verse uh, 8 with this very strongly worded statement, Owe no one anything except for love. It is sin that creates debt. We sing songs about how sin creates a debt and because of God's work on our behalf and paying off our debt that we are a debtor to Christ alone. This notion, this reality that when I lie to you, when I take something that isn't mine. And this is what's going on when we talk about the Ten Commandments and those laws. Most of those are taking things that aren't mine for my own pleasure from my neighbor. They may even willingly give me those things, but they shouldn't. And so when we talk about the sanctity of marriage and the place for physical intimacy and what that is all about, it is the Christian notion and actually something that stuck out in the first couple of centuries, how Christians were committed to the beauty and the joy of physical intimacy and it being all it could be in the context of marriage. Because what adultery is, in no small thing, is a form of theft. It is a theft of something that is not mine being given or taken because it is another's. Scripture talks about marriage that we give ourselves, body and soul, to our spouse. Therefore, my own body isn't mine. And so I hold it in trust for that spouse who is coming and to give myself to them and them alone. And when we begin to see the beauty of what that means, we realize that loving my neighbor may be saying no 
to physical intimacy outside of marriage because that may be my neighbor's wife. He just doesn't know it yet. She's going to wise up. She's going to marry somebody nicer. Not called to marry. Perhaps ever. When we covet and long for something that isn't ours, we know that what that does is in one way or another it causes a debt because I want that so badly that maybe I'll be happy if your life goes poorly and I can purchase it at bargain basement prices. Or maybe I am so wrapped up in it that it's hard for me to enjoy what you have for its own sake. And that creates a deficit in our relationship and a deficit in my relationship with the Lord because I'm embittered that I don't have what another does. The summary of the law of loving my neighbor as myself is an ethic that allows us to enjoy debt-free living and increasingly delighting in what we have, what others have, and a general perspective of the blessings of God, not the deficiencies that I feel I am falling prey to. And so to owe nothing but love is really to owe nothing but generosity and care and compassion, all of the fruit of the Spirit poured out on those around me in the degree and the measure in which the Holy Spirit gives me strength. A debt of love is a debt of care and compassion, and it really doesn't run out. That is to say that extending love to the other, as Christ has extended it to me, is endless, which sounds well, tiring, and sometimes it is, as the Calverts reminded us. But it is important to remember that the love of God is often described as a river. It comes from the very throne of grace. It is God's love watering the world and watering all of us so that we have the strength and ability. And as uh, someone pointed out to me, there is no damn language in Scripture. That is to say, there is no language where we sort of dam up the river of life so that we have our own aquifer or our own pond, but it flows through me. I don't stop God's love. I can't contain it. Therefore, all it can do is pass through me to the other and through you to the next. It is a river of life that allows all of us to drink richly and deeply. The debt of love should not be seen as a deficit, but because of the abundance, it is the means by which we extend grace and extend love to one another. How else would we want to interact with one another? Isn't that the hope and the desire? To have a clear conscience, to have that peace that knows I've extended nothing but love to you. We know that, of course, that has not come to fruition in completely in any of our lives, which is why Paul talks about progress in verse 11. Besides, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake 
from your sleep, for salvation is near to us now, or now than when you first believed. This is a recognition that what Christ started has begun and that what is happening now is not complete, it is not finished. And Paul certainly acknowledges that in our own lives. He has in multiple places, even in Romans, talking about how sin is still present with us and how we rage against that which is still weak or that which would like to return to the old way of living rather than living in the newness of life. And so there is a clear understanding that as much as I want to owe you nothing but love, I'm going to owe you a lot of apologies as well. That the daybreak has started. That their time is closer than when we first began, but it is not completely here yet. But I can be encouraged because the night is far gone. The weighty thing is to believe that we've just started the darkness, that it's just begun and that grace and Christ's return and the fulfillment of heaven and earth being perfectly reunited without sin and death is far off. And Paul here is not predicting an immediate return of Christ. He wasn't disappointed that Jesus didn't come back in his lifetime. He is acknowledging that what has happened is the beginning of the day. And that we live in the expectation because we don't know when it'll fully break. We don't know when that sun is going to peak over the mountains to the exact moment and second. We look for daybreak. We act like it has come. We don't pull uh, the covers back over our heads saying it's still night and I'll live a little bit longer in my own ways. But we rise to meet the sunrise, the risen sun. There are two kinds of sins that are confronted in daybreak. One, those done in darkness because, well, we don't even really want to know we did them. There is a whole part of humanity that sins in the darkness, a whole part of my own human heart that does so in the dark and alone and secretly because I don't want to see it in the light of day. I know how unseemly and unsightly it really is. The last thing I want to do is see that part of me in the daylight. And Paul warns us against those things. And some of them are very uh, traditional and in the sense that they are always things that seduce us into saying, ah, this moment, this will provide you escape from the suffering, from the things that want to take your life and your fun away. And so drunkenness and wild parties are things that promise in the moment enjoyment and freedom and leave us nothing but headaches and sorrow and regret in the morning. And so Paul warns us away from those things that we are traditionally warned away from. But then he also talks about sins that are done actually in the light. And that is jealousy and anger. I have not seen jealousy and anger constrained by what time of day it is. And Paul, particularly as he is encouraging this church 
to be unified as Jew and Gentile together is encouraging them that those things that we're going to talk about in chapter 14 with weaker and stronger brothers and whether or not you can or can't do this kind of day or that kind of meal, jealousy and anger are close behind. Deeply held beliefs, feelings of fear or change can cause jealousy and anger to arise whatever time of day it may be. That doesn't make them any more acceptable than the sins that are only or usually done in the dark. They are no more benign because they're done in the daytime. And particularly in this day, in this age, where we are at a fever pitch, if you will, of wanting to express ourselves in the most firm language possible, in the most public way possible. The phrase that I'm trying to drive from my vocabulary, I'm just saying. Well, I know you're just saying, that's the problem. Maybe you shouldn't have just said. Or maybe you could say it differently or better. More gently or lovingly. For us as believers, to take great stock in Paul's warning, not that truth is compromised, but that speaking truth in love should and would decrease the likelihood of us being accused of following into quarreling and jealousy in a way that is not about owing one another nothing more than a debt of love. And so as day breaks, it's not just the sins that are most at home in the dark, but those sins that can even find themselves in full sway in the light of day that Paul discourages as being contrary to the, to the calling of love. Lastly, we are to be dressed for success And the only way to do that, of course, is to wear the robes of Christ himself, which is heavy. They don't really fit into them. But I'm told that I wear them. Whether I feel it or not, whether I think I deserve it, whether I know I don't deserve it or not, I'm robed in the righteousness of Christ. That is the mantle on which we all uh, are privileged to be attired. It is the ability to love as Christ loved, to be gracious as Christ was gracious, to confront sin as Christ confronted sin, to speak truth and love to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, and, as Paul talks about it, to be armored in Ephesians. We we can't hear this language in Romans and not think of put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. But when we, of course, unpack what that armor looks like, it is love. Just love described in many facets of faithfulness and kindness and prayer. The dress 
that we wear is indicative of who we are in Christ. What people see of us, is it indicative of who we are in Christ? And I would suggest that that really looks very much like how we unpack the last words of this section. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, does that mean you shouldn't enjoy a good meal? Does that mean that you shouldn't have a retirement plan? No. What does it mean? It means that living out of love, I suddenly have a different way of interacting with my enemies, my neighbors, and my family. I'm no longer seeking to gratify in the moment what I need in my life. My fears, my desires, my lusts, my fantasies, fill in the blank. I'm no longer, how do I fill the deep hole in my life and cover my nakedness? What are the fig leaves you're trying to cover yourself with? How do you try and address your fleshly desires and needs? Trust me, like me, chances are anything apart from Christ is some pretty poorly sewn together fig leaves. But the body may inadvertently think, aha, we have provided for our fleshly needs. No, the provision of fleshly desires is where my love is only for me and at the expense of you. I will steal and take from you. I will do what I need to do to provide for my fleshly needs and desires. Sometimes, most often, if one is in leadership, it is the fear of failure, of confessing, of being thought less of. And so counterintuitively, one of the ways in which I can, or anyone who is in a position of leadership can, model being robed in the righteousness of Christ is in the willingness to confess sin and failing. It is not living a sinless life and increasingly feeling the pressure of having to cover up my sin to make you think like I look like Jesus. Anytime we reinterpret Paul's words to believe that we must promote to the world a sinless love, an inability to sin because we have arisen and transcended the brokenness of this world, denies Romans 1 through 11. I want to encourage you that living out of love and living in the daylight and putting on the righteousness of Christ means that to the world around us, we will become far less defensive, far less covering, and far more willing to admit our own brokenness and need before the world can even point it out to us. Because I'm no longer feeding my fleshly desire to be thought well of, self-sufficient, strong, impervious. But robed in Christ, this side of glory, I can lead with confession. That will put a damper on jealousy and quarreling.
It'll give the world a different view of the church. They'll see the beauty of being robed in the righteousness of Christ in the full picture of God being made flesh, living in this world, born in a manger, not having a place to lay, uh, lay his head, suffering unjustly, dying on behalf of those who didn't understand what he was doing, and raised because of love, because of the Father's love, because of the power of love, the love that destroys evil and death, because it is the perfect love of God himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord God, that you would give us the freedom as we are dressed in the robes of righteousness of Christ himself. Lord, that they would see your love. Your love for us when we fail. Your love for us when we suffer. Your love for us when we delight you and use our gifts and all the pleasure that you find in us as we find ourselves in you. Ah, may we rest in the delight and love of a God who put us together for a purpose, each one delighting in us. May that assurance allow us to be, again, Lord, those who point many to you. In Christ's name, amen.